Welcome to this special edition of Encounter Cottage Grove, where I interview myself. I was actually seriously thinking about asking myself some questions, but oh, I'm not going to do that. What I am going to do is I'm going to give you a historian's perspective on July 4th and the the War of Independence and the U U.S. secession from the British Empire. And I want to start off talking about the normal story. I want to talk about the, uh, even the words, American Revolution, talk about a social history perspective to history. And I want to talk about why some people take issue with the holiday and with U.S. independence uh, by looking at the future of the U.S. and some of the um, um, unsavory things that it did, but then also what I really hope to contribute is a discussion of what life was like in the 1770s and 1780s. And um, to give you a little, continue with the preview, preview here, what I'm trying to talk about is something that perhaps will resonate with the audience here in 2020, which is that period, the 1770s, as a portal and uh, a period uh, where society, the norms of society were breaking down and a new order was being constituted. So this episode is being put out on July 5th. Uh, July 5th, historically, particularly in the 19th century, was used as a day, uh, as a kind of counter holiday to July 4th, particularly for black Americans, particularly in relation to slavery. So in honor of that tradition um, and a more nuanced and uh, sort of critical look at the July 4th holiday, uh, this is... Um, Happy July 5th to everybody. And so the normal story, which, you know, I'm just putting that, of course, in quotes, is the textbooks that I learned back many, many years ago, um, which is something like uh, the evil empire of the British, called the British existed, and they were very tyrannical. And the good people of the colonies broke free from the empire and established a nation state, a republic, with citizens that were no longer imperial subjects. They had enlightenment ideals, these great founders. And the ideas came from the thoughts of the great 18th century European thinkers who pondered equality at great lengths in long treatises. And they discussed antiquity and humanity, many great topics. The effort to make a more perfect union then commenced with the Declaration of Independence from the British Empire and was put in the preamble of the U.S. Constitution. And the U.S. has built its own nation in what Obama used to say so often, which was continuing to strive for that, quote, more perfect union with, unquote, with democracy and justice for all. That continual striving was the promise of the national independence. That, of course, is the normal story. That's the story that the nation state pushes as a sanctification of its founding. 
But let's start here with the name itself, the American Revolution. Uh, there's a few problems uh, with that that should just be briefly mentioned. One is that um, American uh, tends to refer to the whole continent. But of course, we're only talking about uh, the eastern seaboard or most the um, what is now the contiguous or the United States. Uh, and then revolution itself is contested, and that's what I'll get to below. It is um, the question whether it is a revolution or in fact, or possibly a counter-revolution is, um, is actually being discussed now. There's, uh, for instance, a book called The Counter-Revolution of 1776. Particularly due to the work of historians in the past few generations, uh, a lot of this um, work has been uncovered that was just not looked at for so long. One of the frameworks in which uh, historians use is what's called social history, which is instead of just looking at what the president said and what the legislator did and what the um, diplomats and militaries did, but to look on the ground, look at local struggles, look at the connection of these, this molecular movement of history of one person affecting the other, one group affecting the next, and changing the ground level, the social level of society, such that those people in governor positions are forced to, or at least um, pressured to make the decisions that they end up making. And one great example of social what a social history uh, perspective does is looking at the event of the emancipation of, um, of about 4 million enslaved Africans in 1865 and in 1863 with the Emancipation Proclamation. It is commonly known that Lincoln is, quote, freed the slaves, is considered the great emancipator, but we have to ask why he did it. One one way to understand why he did it was because his generals were pressuring him to do it, were forcing him to do it. In the year 1862, the year before the Pro Emancipation Proclamation, his generals were freeing slaves on Union lines and were uh, offering emancipation to uh, enslaved Africans who came over to Union lines and fought or worked with the Union. And so instead of saying Lincoln was the great emancipator, maybe we should say General Fremont and these other generals that pushed for emancipation were the great emancipators. But that actually is not social history. Let's go down another level. Why were the generals pushing for emancipation? One of the main reasons, one of the condition on the ground that made it that way, was that enslaved Africans were running over to Union lines and demanding to fight, demanding arms, demanding freedom. They were uh, quitting work on the plantation. They were in the cities. There were networks of normal human beings talking to one another, deciding to make a run for it, sharing information about where the lines were, um, going back and forth and talking to their brethren on other, uh, at other sites across lines. It was this movement, this molecular movement, if you will, from town to town, countryside to countryside, that moved masses, thousands, tens of thousands of enslaved Africans 
to pressure the Union forces and to pressure the generals in such a way that pressured Lincoln and uh, forced the Emancipation Proclamation to come through and eventually make turn the war to uh, what was uh, for the for the Union Army, which was uh, a war to save the Union at first, became a war to end slavery by in the in the latter years of the war. Of course, social history can be uh, as many, many different, can offer us many different insights and just, just to give us another one to show, uh, to give a different angle on on it is um, many people may have heard of the Immigration Act of 1924. It was the first major act after the uh, Chinese Exclusion Act of the 1880s. The Immigration Act of 1984 um, severely restricted non-white immigrants from the Eastern uh, Hemisphere and was uh, was restricted immigration into the U.S. Uh, very severely for anyone from a non-Northern European or Western European uh, country. And that act was not just the act of the legislatures, um, but it was considered the crowning achievement of the second KKK, who had uh, arisen significantly after World War One and lobbied tirelessly throughout the country for um, such exclusion exclusion laws. So talking about July 4th, what I do want to say is that there's different ways people have come to criticize it. And one way is that people have criticized what the United States has become, what it has done after its constitution in 1789, what it has done after, uh, throughout its um, the presidencies of, uh, of 45 presidencies, and criticize these, um, these facts, the facts of um, 3.9 million enslaved Africans as of 1860. Um, people condemn Jim Crow, slavery under another name, ghettos, gentrification, mass incarceration. Many people look to the U.S. steady militarism from its invading um, its neighbor to the north in 1812, or not only Canada, but then Mexico just a few decades later, with the constant wars against the, against the land's indigenous inhabitants, the genocides of tens of millions of Native Americans purposefully exterminated and concentrated into camps and reservations, it very much inspired the disaffected German soldier from World War I who would go on to lead the Nazi party. These, these have earned, the, this, this track record has earned the U.S. much criticism and also its founding much criticism. And these critics of what the U.S. has become point to the U.S. wars to conquer not only its continent, but to, ex this continent, but also to expand into the Pacific into Hawaii, the Philippines, Guam, the Marshall Islands, the invasions of, in Korea, Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, in the 20th century. They point to the long campaigns in the Caribbean, in Cuba, Haiti, Dominican Republic, in Central America, in um, Guatemala, El Salvador, Nicaragua. The list goes on and on, supporting coups, and military dictatorships in Brazil and Chile, on Granada, Colombia, El I said El Salvador, I and I won't, I'm not even going to take the time to touch the Middle East or Africa or the rest of Asia, 
But it takes a while to learn and criticize all these U.S. military actions and judge U.S. US independence from the vantage point of the future and criticizing what it's become and how it, it has engaged a steady wars of conquest and domination. And that's fair enough, but that's not what I intend to do right now more than just doing it. Uh, what I do hope to do as a historian for you is to look at the British colonies on the eastern seaboard of the continent in 1770s and 1780s and their bid to secede from the British Empire. And from, the vantage, from that vantage point, we can talk about the bid for independence. From, the point, from this point, some historians consider, the even from this point, historians consider uh, the national independence to be counter-revolution and others a progressive revolution. And here I contend that there are elements of both, that those, the, the revolution and the counter-revolution were fighting each other both before and after the 1770s and 1780s, but that in that period, that period was a portal when society had broken down into revolutionary upheaval and where we see um, a, heightened, <clears throat> a heightened tension between those two tendencies of revolution and counter-revolution, which would have more lasting consequences because they took place in that portal. This portal, this period, this period of a revolutionary upheaval a couple centuries ago, a couple and a half centuries ago, a period when society was busted open and possibilities developed that had not opened for decades before or after. My main point is that in this period of society busting open, each local struggle between revolution and counter-revolutionary forces were, had an especially big impact, not only for that moment and in that place, but for the future and in places beyond the locale. Now, the story for progressive um, revolution is, is often well known, and I spoke to that in terms of the opening relationship to the more perfect union. But I want to talk here a little bit more about uh, both, and starting with the counter-revolutionary story. One reason historians call the revolution of 1776 a counter-revolution is to think of the situation of indigenous people on this continent. They had been dealing with white settlers for centuries by that point, and, and they had been ravaged by diseases, sometimes purposefully inflicted on them. By the 1770s, the settler population had started to racialize Native Americans as, quote, red, which was a new development, and as the, as the campaigns of genocide were on the rise. White settlers on the frontiers were almost always more genocidal and vicious than Native, to Native Americans than the federal government. Sometime, or, the, or the British Empire from afar, sometimes referring to them as the Great Father. In 1763, the British controlled the 13 colonies, but the French and Spanish had outposts and settlers through the Floridas, the Mississippi Valley, the Great Lakes region, and elsewhere. The vast majority of the continent was controlled by what French explorers called an infinity of nations an infinity, that is, an infinity of Native American nations. And those in the Ohio Valley could ally with the French when the British were fighting them. And they could ally with the Spanish and the, and the French uh, when the French turned on them further south. And this, this chess game offered in many indigenous tribes a modicum of power and stability against the European empires. However, by the 1750s and 60s, a worldwide war between the French Empire and the British Empire pushed back 
of Spanish and French settlements in North America. The main contenders in eastern North America, the Midwest and in the South, became, more, became a simpler game with less European players. There was mainly the British settlers and the native confederations started were lining up uh, in a greater dichotomy. Indigenous people now had fewer and fewer empires to play off each other. It was, became just the, after the American Revolution, it became just them and the settlers. The British officials in London in the uh, 1760s, they wanted some peace in their distant empire. We have to remember the Americas were a far periphery of this British empire. And they wanted a little bit of peace with the powerful Indians of the, uh, at the edges of their empire. And they drew a line in 1763 telling British Americans in the colonies, telling the settlers to not cross the Appalachians and to let the Indians be. This was the proclamation of 1763. And the settlers, they didn't listen. They ignored the law and they took land and they killed Indians. For settlers, the proclamation of 1763 was an act of tyranny, stopping them from killing Indians. It chafed at their, quote, liberty in their attempt, to, in their claim to be civilized. They went ahead, pushed forward, and conquered land and killed uh, in their conquest of Native Americans. The settlers uh, were, were pissed at the British Empire after this proclamation of 1763. And what I'm, what I'm trying to say is that there was, it was no small reason that the revolution took place a decade later was that this ongoing um, anger at the British for trying to stop them from um, moving west and conquering more land. And in this light, in this light, the Americans revolted against the British to take Indian land. And this is a significant reason why the American Revolution could be considered a counter-revolution. Now let's turn also to the issue of slavery and how both revolution and counter-revolutionary forces coexisted during the 1770s and 1780s. A progressive revolution coincided with, a, with, a, with, a, with the preservation and extension of slavery in this period. The two forces contended with each other in this portal period. They, 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 the conflict between the two forces was exaggerated. Their actions became ever more important. The forces for slavery and against were always in struggle, but their contention became more salient in the portal. First off, let's remember that for 150 years on the eastern seaboard of North America was a site of cruelty and slavery. New York City was the second largest slave port behind only Charleston. Whole economies were built on forced labor for the majority also of white immigrants in conditions of coerced labor, were in conditions of coerced labor. Their white privilege being that when they were whipped, they were allowed to keep their shirts on. This wages of whiteness, this psychological uh, and physical benefit. During the revolution, Slaveholders feared that Africans, enslaved Africans, would revolt. They, many considered the enslaved Africans to be, quote, an internal enemy. The British offered emancipation to enslaved Africans during the war if they came and fought for them. Lord, Dunsmar, Lord Dunsmore of, of Virginia 
the British agent there, um, created havoc for um, British and for settlers, slave plantation owners by trying to entice enslaved Africans to British lines with emancipation. Britain had just, Britain itself was undergoing the beginnings of um, emancipation and abolition. It had just had its first anti-slavery legal victory in the early 1770s in what was called the Somerset case. Britain soon was to ban the slave trade, the Atlantic slave trade, and they had itself an, a surge in abolitionism. In this sense, the U.S. Revolution, the fight against the British Empire, was between American slavery and British freedom. The Constitution enshrined slavery, most, most famously with the Three-Fifths Clause, and treating enslaved Africans as both property and humans. It enabled slavery to, to expand into, the, into territories, even though the word slavery itself was never mentioned in the Constitution. And in this sense, the U.S. Revolution was, was a counter-revolution fighting to preserve slavery. In the North, and there were far fewer enslaved Africans and a weaker, weight, uh, weaker slave power, there was, there was a revolutionary radicalism that sometimes included anti-slavery in the 1770s. There were people trying to upset the order that had been entrenched over the past century. Pennsylvania was the first state to limit slavery during the revolution and the breakaway state of Vermont immediately abolished it there as well. When President George Washington worked in the new federal capital in Philadelphia, he had to cross the state border every six months because he had brought slaves with him and slaves were not allowed to reside in Pennsylvania for more than six months. So he had to cross over state lines and he then would cross back into uh, the capital. And at least one of his slaves escaped while he was working as president of the United States. The, U in the U.S. Revolution had revolutionized social relations in Pennsylvania. In this sense, the revolutionary acts of freedom overturned the order which had been established for over a century. Those revolutionary acts did not win at large, but they set the stage for freedom Pennsylvania's freedom pushed other northern states to abolish slavery over the next few decades. And by the 1830s, though slavery was expanding in the south, it had receded from the north. The revolutionary acts of localized freedom enabled the runaway railroad. It made northern cities like New Bedford a haven for enslaved Africans to escape to and to organize the abolition movement. The division between southern slavery and northern emancipation a house divided, of course, eventually led to the clash between the two sections of the nation, and eventually to the generalized emancipation of 1865. The fact that the forces of abolition won a battle in Pennsylvania when society had broken open in the 1770s had a huge historical impact. So if we zoom out, we know that both that the, revel uh, that the Constitution continued and, in fact, helped the 100-plus-year system of chattel slavery to expand, 
But we also see that the portal period gave the chance for the progressive revolutionary forces of abolition to gain a stronghold. Though they couldn't upend the entire slave system, they did have local successes, which eventually had world historical consequences. So this concludes your program. And I do want to say that I hope you have a lovely July 5th weekend and beyond whenever you get to listen to this podcast and that you appreciate your life now in the portal of the 2020s. Music is by Richard Swift. See you next time.